so that in these words to come, we may hear your word. Amen. So as many of you know, those who've been coming here for a while, uh, this year I'm trying something new. I'm experimenting with using the lectionary. That's that three-year cycle of readings that originally came out of the Second Vatican Council and various Protestant churches got on board so that you can go to different churches around Houston and around the globe and hear the same passages being preached. And this year is year A in the lectionary cycle, which means the primary gospel for this year is the gospel of Matthew. So I decided to preach this morning on the resurrection account that we find in Matthew. I have to confess, the resurrection account in Matthew is not my favorite. You see, we know from scholars that Matthew almost certainly had the gospel of Mark in front of him when Matthew wrote his gospel. So it's fascinating to see what parts Matthew changed from Mark. So he had Mark before him, and he was composing what he was composing, and he changed certain things. He added a few things in. One thing was he added an earthquake. You notice that? You read through the text, there's an earthquake in the Gospel of Matthew. There's no earthquake in Mark. There's no earthquake in Luke. There's no earthquake in John. You would think that if an earthquake actually happened, someone else would have taken note of this. Earthquakes don't tend to be things that slide under the radar. Then there's also this bit about the guards that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the passage just before, the part of the passage just before uh, Matthew 28 introduces these guards, where the chief priests are concerned that the disciples might steal the body, so they go, body of Jesus, so they go to Pilate and they request guards. So they're guards in front of the tomb. And again, in our passage for today, you see the guards uh, being afraid. Well, immediately afterwards in verse 11, the guards then go to uh, the chief priests and they tell them what happened about the resurrection. And the chief priests respond by bribing the money and say, here's some money, now just go, go claim that the body was stolen. Now, one problem with this, of course, is that if there actually were these Roman guards, these Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb, uh, and they wanted to report the resurrection, they wouldn't first go to the Jewish authorities, they would have gone to their own superior officers. But Matthew likes to put this in the story. In the Gospel of Mark, Uh, The original ending ends at verse 8, and it ends very famously with the women leaving the tomb afraid. But you'll notice in this passage, not only are the women afraid, they're also filled with joy. Matthew wants to add a little happiness to his Easter account. And then, in Mark, there's no actual appearance of the resurrected Jesus, just an empty tomb. But Matthew fixes that, don't worry, we have an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. This is why I have to dip into my texting lexicon and say SMH, shaking my head. <laughs> I mean, if, the, if, if, if Matthew's trying to get me to believe in this, you'd think he wouldn't add all these extra details in. I'm like, this is definitely straining my credulity. I don't know about you, but give me my gospel of Mark and I will be very happy. But maybe, of course, Matthew's not writing this for you. Or me. Maybe Matthew has a very different audience in mind. According to uh, scholars, again, we realize that Matthew's audience were mostly uh, Jewish-oriented Christians. 
Christians who were very well versed in the Hebrew Bible. As a result, they would know that when an earthquake shows up, it's an eschatological sign of God. It's a sign of some sort of end times, of something big changing. It comes up in Isaiah, comes up in Haggai, comes up in Habakkuk, comes up in Zechariah. This is not an uncommon theme to have an earthquake as a symbol of God's power and something happening. And so if you were Jewish and you were reading that, you go, oh yes, this makes sense. Similarly, Matthew changes the young man in bright clothes to an angel, also a sign of God's favor of the end times, something big happening. Now, Matthew was writing his gospel at a time when there was a lot of tensions between uh, the nascent rabbinic Judaism of the day and uh, Jewish Christians, the Christian movement. As a result, there was a lot of disagreements, one of which was, again, uh, Jews saying to Christians, hey, this body was just stolen. This was a major concern. We, we, we also see this coming up uh, about 70 years later in the writings of Justin, Justin Martyr. When he's writing his dialogue with Trifo, he brings this up because this is such a commonly uh, leveled concern against Christians. And so Matthew draws on a tradition that he had heard about guards at the tomb in order to try and figure out where this tradition of stealing the body came from and to refute it. And remember, he's writing this gospel some 50 years after Jesus' death. 50 years of celebrating an Easter Sunday like this one every year. Trying to live into that resurrection faith day after day. Is it really surprising that he'd want to add a little bit of joy into his account? Or that he'd mention the resurrected Jesus? I mean, there were accounts of people of, as Elizabeth mentioned, some 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Is it really that much of a stretch for Matthew to put one of those in his account? What's interesting is that Matthew doesn't give many details about the nature of the resurrected Jesus. The Gospel of John gives a lot more details about that. And if you read some of the extra-canonical gospels, like, or extra-canonical writings, like the Apocalypse of Peter, you see in vivid detail about the resurrection. But here, Matthew is content with just saying, it happened. So what about you? What would your resurrection account look like if you were to write it? I'm serious. Let's say you were to write a resurrection account. What would you include in it? Some of you might sit down and say, you know, uh, I don't like a lot of supernatural stuff, so I'm going to take the Gospel of Mark and I'll massage it a bit to make it have, make sense in sort of a contemporary scientific viewpoint, and that would be your resurrection account. Others are deeply moved by issues, say, of economic injustice. And so perhaps when you're writing your resurrection account, you would highlight uh, the common clothes that Jesus' disciples and the women were wearing or the very nice clothes and the wealth of the Jerusalem elite and the Roman authorities. Perhaps you have a concern about peace issues, in which case maybe your resurrection account would include shouts uh, calling for a revolution, calling for an overturn of the Roman government, and in order to highlight the contrast between that desire for violence and Jesus' intentional nonviolent death. Or maybe you would make even a bigger deal of the fact that the people who find the resurrected Jesus, of course, were women. In this deeply patriarchal society, it was the women that had this initial revelation, not the men. And maybe you'd want, in your account, 
to expand that emphasis. Maybe you'd add into that account Simon of Cyrene from Africa, an African going to the tomb as one of the initial people. Or perhaps you'd want to include a eunuch. For transgender Christians, uh, the image of the eunuch in the New Testament and Old Testament is one that has deep resonance, one where they can see themselves in that individual. Maybe your resurrection account would include a eunuch going to the tomb as well. Because, you know, the point is to get you to believe. This is not a history. A gospel is not supposed to be a history. It's not a relating of facts. It's an argument through story. And the argument through story is something great has happened, and I want you to believe in it. That's what Matthew's trying to do with his gospel, speaking to the people that he was speaking to. And if you were writing your resurrection account, you would be doing just the same thing, trying to get the people that you're communicating to to believe. The events on Good Friday are easy to believe. Don't require any stretch of imagination. When you see human greed at work, when you see ambition at work, when you see the powers that be trying to maintain their power, is that hard to believe? You look around today, you can see examples of Good Friday everywhere. You know, politicians trying to take advantage of uh, transgender kids in order to fulfill some political end or catering to xenophobia in society and demonizing people who are undocumented immigrants, even though everybody in this country would admit we have to have more sensible immigration policy at a national level. Think of one example after another. You can see the evil around the world. Good Friday is obvious. That's not the question. The question is, can you believe in Easter? Can you believe that in the face of all of those bad things, the bad things of the world, the bad things that happen, that actually that there's a positive response? Or is it just Good Friday? Is that it? That's really the fundamental question at hand here. Easter is not, uh, at its most fundamental level, about eternal life. Christians, early Christians, held similar views about eternal life as the Pharisees did. So the point of the resurrection is not that eternal life happens. That would have been a common belief at the time. And there were different variations of it. And trust me, your beliefs on eternal life are probably not the same as early Christians and Jews of that time. The message of the resurrection is not necessarily about eternal life. It's an eschatological answer. It is God's answer to the no of the world. It's saying, okay, in the midst of human sinfulness, in the midst of Good Friday, there is the yes of Easter. That's the point. God's yes to the no of the world. Now, when I was a kid, I loved Easter. It was my favorite holiday of the year. I guess it's not that surprising, given what I'm doing now. But, <laughs> And my father owned a drugstore, and so he would have free access to all this candy that he would bring to us. So I remember Easter morning, we would be inundated with chocolate. Looking back on it, it always shocks me how much high fructose corn syrup little kids can eat and not you know, reach their fill point. And we would have a fantastic Easter egg hunt. My aunt and uncle uh, got married and waited 10 years before they had kids. So they were like second parents to us. And one of the things that, that my aunt loved to do was put on the most elaborate Easter egg hunt you've ever seen uh, for myself, my brother, and my sister. And we'd have this wonderful family dinner. But my favorite part about Easter wasn't all those things. It was actually the worship service. I'm not kidding. As a kid, I actually liked the worship service the best. Because you walked into the sanctuary... And you see this, you're immediately hit with the smell of lilies and beautiful flowers up front. 
You hear transcendent music that lifts your soul. Uh, I was able to convince MJ to sing my favorite Easter hymn after the sermon, so. (laughs) Come ye faithful, raise the strain. You get to have uh, all these bright colors. There's so many great things about the worship service, but at its core, even though I was young, I still got the basic message of what Easter was all about. It was about that yes of God. And I would sit in the pews and stare at the golden cross up front, And I'd keep staring at it, and the light would shine on that cross such that when I closed my eyelids, I could see the cross make a shape in my eyelids. Because that's what it's all about. When you dig through the struggle of life, when you dig through concerns over money, when you dig through issues in your family or other relationships, when you dig through the various things that that are weighing you down, and as you get to the bottom of it, the what are you going to find? The message of Easter is that at the bottom, you're going to find the yes of God. That that's what it's all about. Christians, we Christians, are fundamentally optimistic people. We are optimistic. We are optimistic about the world because we believe in the resurrection. That's what makes the difference. It also allows us the capacity of facing down Good Friday and all of its evil. We can look at Good Friday and call it out as it is and struggle against it because we know that the final answer is actually a yes. It's actually an affirmation of God. Those who don't believe in a resurrection want to downplay Good Friday. They want to downplay the evil in the world because they don't want to actually have to face up to how bad it can be. But if you can actually face up to it, you can have the courage to struggle against it because you know that in the end, regardless of what happens, there can be a yes. And it's not easy to hold on to. I mean, again, you go tell a kid sitting in Aleppo that God's answer is yes, and it can be a tough message to hear. But to be able to hear that message allows for goodness to come out even in the face of evil. Now, after we leave this celebration this morning and you have done with all your family stuff, you'll be going on with your lives. And over the course of the year, I guarantee you, the message of this day will begin to recede into the background. The realities of life will set in and various things will come up that will get you down, that will make you think dark thoughts, that will put you in places that are tough to live in. And the one thing I want to take with you, I want you to take with with you from this service is that basic message that even in those dark times, even six months from now, eight months from now, when something's happening in your life that you have a hard time facing, I still want you to be able to hear that whisper in the back of your mind, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That yes of God is what this morning is all about.